as I am completely invested and interested in someone else's journey through the law of oneness, I too feel seen, heard, and valued just by how deeply I see, hear, and value others. Hey everyone, it's Raghu back with Mind Rolling, and uh, my guest today is Matt Kahn. Matt, welcome to Mind Rolling. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to mind roll with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've written, Matt's written a, a, a lovely book and a manageable book too, which is another thing. It's, you know, you're not sitting there having to go through 600 pages. Um, but, and it's published by um, our friends. It sounds true. Yes who we love and we do so many things with. Um, but before we get into that, you know, there's some lovely things in the book related mm -hmm. to what I am most interested in and how I like to present basically information to mm -hmm. whoever wants to listen or watch. And, uh, and there's just some real practical things that can be applied here. So that, that's a, that's a great thing, and I appreciate what you've done. Thank you so much. But, uh, and actually, Matt, there's some funny th uh, intersections uh, in in our lives. I think we had some similar parenting and <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so I'll point them out as we go along. But, yeah, I always ask, what, what were the triggers that got you out of the, the head of I'm me, me? And uh, everyone else is separate and scary and, you know, that there is a place of interconnectivity, a path to be happy, just those basic kind of things. What are the triggers for you when you were young? Th that got me out of that. Yeah. <clears throat> I would say that I spent the majority of my childhood as a little politician. When I went from fifth grade to sixth grade, I discovered the totem pole of social status and... I made it my business to try to make sure that everyone liked me. And, you know, I spent time trying to keep people happy as if that was going to give me the validation that I was seeking. And of course, anytime we are seeking some wholeness by someone else's approval, you know, we are in a state of separation, whether we perceive it that way or not. And what I discovered just spontaneously is I had a moment in my life when I was a kid, I can't remember the exact memory, where I, I found myself just going out of my way to be polite to someone. And they weren't necessarily polite back to me. And I had a really stunning realization that my ability to lead with politeness towards a human being made me feel exactly the way I thought I would feel when someone validated me. And so I developed this spontaneous practice of striving to be polite to every human being that I met because of how good it felt in my body to operate from that space. And it had always been impressed upon me from my parents to always be the bigger person, always be the nice person. So part of it started from this, you know, I'm more afraid of the wrath of my mom than the disrespect of kids <laughs> on the playground. And, but as I really yeah. found some sort of, there was a deep, genuine you know, earnestness that came forward and just being so polite to someone. And I think that 
you know, because at the age, I, I wouldn't have known this. But looking back, I could say that that was actually my experience of detachment, that detachment wasn't about letting go of something. Uh, detachment was about I let go of the attachment to validation because being polite was something much more worthwhile to embrace and sink my teeth into. And so I found from a very early age that my ability to treat people with respect, even in response to someone who's being blatantly disrespectful for me, gave me the kind of experience of wholeness that I no longer had to seek in another person. And that became my, my, my first awareness of holding space, which again, I wouldn't realize for many years later, but it really began with how good it feels to treat someone respectfully and not requiring them to treat me that way back. And it was quite, mm. it was quite shocking and it was quite um, a, a brilliant seeing that happened for me. Mm. Well, this though was either before, this was before I think that you might have had an idea about the different paths that right. one could take to get a different perspective and a practice and so on. Sure. Right? This this happened way before that. Way before. So then, what, who did you meet up with to change your world? Well, I met up with Ascended Masters and Archangels that I met with in the etheric realms. You know, I've always been guided by spirit guides and angels, and I was, you know, born with an ability to see and feel and perceive other realms. And it was because all the messages that they delivered to me um, you know, came with the feeling of love that I had in my first out-of-body experience when I was eight. And so the fact that it always felt loving and my guides had always said to me, they said, you know, don't be mesmerized by who we are. Just listen to what we say and see if at any, at any time what we say is less than loving. And everything they've always taught me has always been the most loving perspective. So if we're going to heal the body, how do we do that with love? If we're going to stand up for ourselves, how do we do that with love? And I think there's a lot of people who, who confuse love. And I think there's a lot of people that try to be so heart-centered, but wind up being heart-centered in a very disempowered, self-doubting type of way. Or spiritually have, bypassing kind of way. I would say so, you know, and I think that the work that I offer intuitively and the place from which it comes from energetically is really about the integration of the human self and the mm -hmm. spiritual self so that we really become fully actualized expressions of spirit and form and not bouncing back and forth between um, perceivable extremes. The only experience that I ever had regarding uh, uh, the, the beings on other planes of consciousness mm -hmm. that you're speaking to, well, first it was with a, a teacher named Hilda Charlton. Do you know who that is? Uh, I've heard, maybe the name is vaguely familiar. Yeah. I mean, Ramdas was, uh, we were um, students of her. Mm -hmm. And I say that in a general way. There was people that were really actualizing on a day-to-day -day basis with her uh, her particular teachings. Uh uh, but Ram, Ram Dass and I did hang out, and there was a lot around the archangels, especially, and uh, which was a little difficult for me. I'm the opposite of you. I can't. I haven't seen sure. nothing. Sure, <laughs> zero. <laughs> I mean, but I do have that example. It was in a physical body named Karoli Baba, so I'm, I'm, I have nothing to to be uh, uh, concerned about, shall we say? Right. Um, but Ramdas particularly had a relationship with a disembodied being named Emmanuel. Are you familiar with that yeah. part of his story? Yeah. He's yeah. the one. Dying is like taking off a, uh, a tight shoe, Ramdas. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. and lots of great uh, sound bites uh, from mm-hmm. him. And uh, Ramdas used to say, uh, "Well, you know, you're you're cool. You can be with anybody of any race, any mm-hmm. color, any gender, and everything's cool. But suddenly, when I start talking about someone who doesn't happen to have a body, everyone clams up." <laughs> And that's kind of a little bit uh, of, of what sure. happens. Yeah. I'm sure you've experienced this, right? Yeah, and I've actually had a profound experience with Ram Dass. I received a Shakti pot from Neem Karoli Baba that went through Ram Dass and it hit, oh, yeah. me, hit me in the third eye. And um, Physical? Had, yeah. You were with him physically? Yeah. he had named Before me, the stroke or after? After the stroke. Uh-huh. And he had given me a name, and he had named me Ganesh Das, which I still mm. use Matt. And he didn't know that my work is the remover of obstacles when I help people heal. And as he said it, there was a light that shot out of his third eye and it hit me and it, my mind went completely blank. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I've had, I've had this Shaktipat experience on three occasions where, you know, the history of my life oozes out of my ears and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, then you go through a processing. I went through a processing after one Shaktipat earlier where I was wrapped in a blanket feeling like I'm about to die every day for two years. And so, really, yeah. So I've had a lot of intense experiences of awakening and activation. And then of course, with my intuitive abilities, I like to think that I'm bridging both worlds between awake, you know, the path of awakening and the path of cellular healing, trauma and all these things. And that Mm. there's a way we can bring it together. And, you know, even in my experience with my guides, I remember there was an experience where they called me into a experience and I just kind of meditatively teleported to a, to what's called the Akashic records. And they stood in front of the Akashic records and they lifted up their chins like they had masks on and underneath the masks were me. And that they had introduced themselves as not only these higher dimensional beings, but then showed me that those were all aspects of my own absolute self. And so to see that there's an individuated expression of consciousness and there's individual notes and it's all a part of one melody. And I've, again, I've had so many experiences that, that led me to this, like, you know, what we'd call samadhi, this embodied lived realization. And that's, you know, from these experiences, what I'm transmitting and channeling to help people heal and integrate and really embody these truths but in the most empowered and heart-centered way and so i'm when you say you know ramdas i just smile because of my experiences yeah. and, wow. you know really blessed for the experiences i've had with beings in body and mm. out of body mm. very good and by the way everybody listening to this who has a hard time with disembodied beings <laughs> archangels and so on and i'm really one of those people by yeah. the way you know, yeah I'm, i have much more of a bent towards a Buddhist. I, that's what Ramdas said. When I went to India, I wasn't interested in, in Hinduism whatsoever. I was a Buddhist, right? And and the interesting thing that came about through Neem Karoli Baba after we had been there with him when Ramdas went back the second time is yeah. that it he didn't teach anything, but somehow there was this whole intersection of Buddhism and Bhakti that we were. Given that is part of what we offer the all the way till now, anything we do, retreats and so on, there is that mixture, and, and that happened with Ramdas for fifteen years. Uh, but so anybody though, you're still a little suspicious. The Akashic records, come on. <laughs> Meanwhile, I can send you to a place in um, Chennai, sure, in India, where they have records they'll have your record and you give them your birth date and all that stuff 
and they will read out to you exactly what has happened and what will happen in your life. I know That's awesome. many people who have gone, <laughs> including Deepak Chopra. He'll just look, Deepak will tell you. Uh, so all to say, and it doesn't mean anything. You don't need to do it or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you happen to, you know, people right. do go there. But, you know, all to say is everything is possible. And I had that direct experience in India. That Wonderful. There isn't anything that, that is uh, precluded from all possibilities. Absolutely. And, you, you know, know, I think what's important to know is for anyone that might not be sure about being disembodied, not to worry. We will all be disembodied soon enough, and we will all get to be. <laughs> You're going to meet up there someday, yeah. We're going to meet up, and then we get to be what we judge, and it's wonderful. And but at the same time, it's you know, it's everyone's open to what they're open to. And my my thing with any teaching and consciousness is as long as the teaching, the content, the pointer is coming from a loving place. As long as we are teaching people how to be more loving, more inclusive, more tolerant, more compassionate, whether we come like That's I've it. asked life as a. I have a past life as a, as a Zen Buddhist monk in Tibet, and I remember that lifetime. And so w- whatever avenue we come from, whether we're psychically activated, whether emotionally empathic, whether we're Buddhist, whether we're Hindu or whatever it is, I, I tend to find just a lot of beauty in the diversity of every path. And my hope is just the path is just whatever ideology reminds us to act from our highest ethics and values. And, and that for me is what mm-hmm. love does. And so I just hope and intend mm-hmm. for everyone to find their own right flavor of love, to have what they always wanted to feel and to be able to contribute to our world in the way that our world deserves to evolve and expand. Yeah. And of course, we, uh, I often tell this story as well. And again, we keep, seem to be talking about Ram Dass, which is appropriate. It's the Be yeah. Here Now Network. Ram Dass is Be Here Now. Uh, and he, uh, yeah, he, he wanted when he, we came back the second time, he wanted the secrets to becoming enlightened. Mm -hmm. So he asked Maharaji who said, he, he, he really, he had a lot of Buddhist friends and they got all these incredible esoteric practices they were right. doing night and day and having all kind you know, stream entry and all the whole nine yards sure. that happens with Buddhist meditation. And Maharaji said, well, feed people. <laughs> exactly. And he was like, what, you know, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. And then he asked again about how to raise Kundalini, love everyone. Yeah, there you go. You know, he couldn't get at Maharaji. Mm-hmm. I, I asked Maharaji how to meditate. And this is a billion times the story's been told. And he said, meditate like Christ. He was lost in love with every sentient being. That's right. When he was nailed to the cross, he felt no pain, and right. which was way over my head. I just wanted right. to Ram Ram, give me a minute. You know, I, I, <laughs> I don't know why I went there instead of just saying, give me a, a mantra or something. Anyhow, the, yeah. And the reality is that unless, that's why I was attracted. Uh, Matt's book's called All for Love. Mm-hmm. Let me hold it up a little All bit. All for better. Love, the transformative power of holding space. There you go. And uh, yeah, because I truly do feel like meditating and doing chanting and reading spiritual books and meeting teachers and God knows what everyone Mm -hmm. does, you know, which is based of how do I get through the suffering and pain that my day to day can be. Um, It's, you know, 
It's about how can we become, as you just said, kinder, more compassionate, more That's loving. Right. That's what it's about. Yes. And, uh, you know, enlightenment is none of our pay grades. That doesn't, that's way beyond. You know. Well, and you know, it's funny about enlightenment, you know, and, and when we talk about enlightenment, you know, <clears throat> then the question becomes, okay, are we referring to the mo a moment of realization? Are we talking about the flaking away of the old structure, the rebirth we go through? Are we, you know, because there's yeah, so many right. different stages. Exactly. There's so many different. The, the integration of it. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, the path of love, of self-love, is one that is such a potent healer, but it only activates in us when we take, when we have the right intention and the right approach. If we're loving ourselves from the position of this is going to make my suffering more minimal, or this is going to give me this meat to an end, you know, it sends the message to our inner, inner child, or, or which is an aspect of our ego, and it really sends a more disempowering message instead of a message of connection. So what I love the most is the path of love is so potent and powerful as a healer, it can trigger self-realization, kundalini awakening, and it could help us heal our traumas, but only when we take it with the most genuine approach. So what I find ironic is that we, in order to love ourselves, we have to be authentic. And in order to be authentic, we have to love ourselves. And so it's whether we're putting in time as a meditator or whatever we're doing, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is why are we really doing this? And are we taking the most genuine approach? And my intention as a teacher is that when people seek me for guidance or clarity, I want to be a tour guide that says, hey, for as much time or a little time as we have together, I want to help make sure that your structure, your posture, your ability to be authentic and open and honest has the right alignment mm -hmm. and the right trajectory. And, and I think that that's a great yeah. benefit to offer people, especially at this time where it's kind of like, how can I get what I want in the shortest amount of time? And I think the spiritual journey really is a path that helps us really confront and work that out. Yeah, absolutely. So I open the book up, and the first thing I th I see, yeah, it's right next to the publishing information. Actually, <laughs> uh, by David, it's a quote from David White, W H Y T E. Who is that? David White's a, a mystical poet. And that was a, we must have oh, gotten really? an earlier version of the book because I changed the dedication. But originally, I have that quote from David White, who's a mystical poet. It's not and in the in the published book. No, it's it's um, I, I had changed it because I wanted to dedicate my book to someone yeah. near to my heart. But originally, I had put that quote in there because I thought that quote really encapsulated the intention of my book. Phenomenal quote. Thank you. You want to read it? Yep. Draw yourself a door through which to be hospitable, even to the stranger in you. That's really great. And I'm, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, is, is he still with us, David? Yes, he is. And I've seen him live. And I wrote that line down when he said it live. And oh, yeah? it was a, it was a, it was just a sentence that kind of encapsulated the way I relate to life, the way I relate to form, the way I relate to other people. Um, it is my spiritual practice and not something I tell myself I have to do. It's I'm at a position in my life where it's the, it's the only instinct within me. Like I can feel emotions, but it comes from such a place of love and my intention and my desire to care for people. Um, <clears throat> it, it, it is so deep. And when I, when he said those words, I just got, Oh my goodness. It's like, Rumi just put into words my life path and 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 served it up to me. And when I was writing this book originally, I thought, 
I'm going to, I'm going to put that in there. And then mm. I, I, I rededicated it, but yeah, that's actually one of my favorite lines. And he is such an incredible poet and um, really just reading it is amazing and watching him perform it is a, it's its own transmission. So I'm, I'm quite yeah. a fan of his. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe you'll introduce me to him if you know. <laughs> when I meet him, I'll let you know. Oh, <laughs> I've never met him. Oh, I, no. Yeah, no, I, I would love to meet him one day. And uh, but, but he's just um, he's just a beautiful. So he's you know he's like the he's like a Bob Dylan in in poetry. He's just such a really wow. Yeah, he's a, he's okay, a I got to try. It. Well, I'll reach out somehow. Fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know what? It just th- this uh, reminded me uh, so powerfully about what happened again to us in India, uh, the Westerners that went over, mm. some of them you know, aside from Ramdas. We, hospitality, we had no idea of what that word meant. Right. And in the West, until you go live with an Indian family. Right. I, and, not, and this is not just India. I think more. And this is more common in the East altogether. Right. And Maharaji, the, he'd say things like, the uninvited guest is worth a hundred thousand sacrificial fires, or something, <laughs> something you know, like that. And and the way we were treated, uh, mm-hmm. all the way through the decades. Uh, I I remember at one point I I was with our close uh, Ramdas's close Indian brother K K Shah, who passed just two months after Ramdas. Oh he didn't. He told us I'm not staying around without Ramdas. Yeah, I, I thought he was joking. Um, Obviously not. I went and I wanted to take a picture of one of his pictures of saints that he had in his house. Now, he used to say to us, if you, when you're in your mother's house, your parents' home, do you ever ask, mom, can I take out the butter from, no, you'd never do that. You would just say, okay, uh, give me the butter, please, or Pass the something. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be this the kind of politeness that separates you from these people, mm-hmm. right? And he's so. I asked him if I could take a picture of one of these saints. He looked at me, and his whole f- jaw, his, everything, just went into this slack kind of concerned. How could you do this? I, I might have slapped him in the face. Is is the way it? And then I went, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Don't ask. You're part of the family. That kind of hospitality I had never, ever experienced before. Sure. And it and was throughout all of the which is why Neem Karoli Baba sent Ramdas after the day the day after the day that he met him, he sent him to to KK, this uh, his Indian brother's house, and he became part of that family. And that all got transferred to, to us who who went there two years later, three years later. Well, Anyhow, and, and, yeah. that quote is phenomenal. Man. Thank you. And just to touch upon what you just said, I think, you know, <clears throat> it would be no surprise to suggest that people who in their lifetimes commit crime do so from a space of desperation, do so from a space of struggle to try to have more of what they don't have access to. And I think that if people who commit crimes from a place of struggle were to ever experience what it's like to be served with such hospitality, I believe that people who are served at the most incredible heart-centered way, it then triggers the reciprocity of, I want to contribute and give back to what you're giving me. And I think that if we adopt this in the world, and especially if we look at spirituality, where I look at spirituality as being two different sides, like two hands that come together in prayer. 
and we have self-inquiry or self-reflection, and then we have the bhakti, we have the devotion. Mm. And so when we bring the self-inquiry and the self-reflection in with the bhakti, I think we can find, whether it's through meals, whether it's through celebration or connection, that the more we allow all beings to be served, we minimize the struggle that helps us to break free of survival mode and start coming together as a global village. And so to really experience yeah. oneness in such a heart-centered and compelling way through yeah. service. Yeah. You know, it is holiness. The Dalai Lama says, I am the way I am, as you see me, with, he was referring to his compassionate worldview, mm. because of my mother. <laughs> my mother was so compassionate and instilled this in me. This is what we need in the world. We need this kind of compassion shared with children so that they will go out and do the right thing. He didn't say it quite that way. Right. And, uh, you know, that is, is core and uh, yeah. very difficult when there is so much pressure. You know, the, the pressures everybody is under sure. these days is, is tremendous, uh, tremendously challenging. Well, and I think one of the greatest challenges of that is that people are already under tremendous pressure. And then the idea of having to act in a conscious, heart-centered way when you're under so much pressure and then people don't know where to start. And then that adds another pressure and people yeah. will naturally turn away because they're trying to minimize the pressure and regulate their nervous systems. And so when I wrote this mm -hmm. book, I wrote it to be an owner's manual that says for any person who wants to transmute struggle and wants to learn how to step into a life of service without being walked on by other people. How do we be heart-centered, empowered, empathic? And how do we really communicate from a space of oneness in an ever-divided world? And so for people that want to step into this but don't want to be overwhelmed with pressure and confusion, I wrote this book to meet every person where they're at in their spiritual journey and to really bring the world together at a time where we really need to come together and serve each other yeah and it reflects that there as i said it attracted me because of the practicality of of Thank the you. uh of the perspective basically Thank you. um so but here's one thing yeah so in the book you talk about holding space right yes and what does that mean and and you you quoted somebody it means uh heather platt means we are willing to walk alongside another person in whatever journey they're on without judging them, making them feel inadequate, trying to fix them, or trying to impact the outcome. When we hold space for other people, we open our hearts, offer unconditional support, and let go of judgment and control. This to me, and so this is a little bit of a pushback, I guess. Sure. The reality that's being spoken to here. Mm -hmm. If we were all, uh, I won't even say Neem Karoli, Bob, if we were saints, mm -hmm. there's a chance, still maybe not great, but a chance that these uh, admonitions, is that the right word? Um, her thoughts about no judgment mm -hmm. with, for another person. No making them feel inadequate. No trying right. to fix them. <clears throat> trying to impact how they end, should end up acting. Right. And if we open our hearts and offer unconditional support, mm -hmm. 
and let go of judgment and control. Unconditional support, that would be there when we have unconditionality inside ourselves and no polarization inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's a tall order here. And I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I'm completely obviously in agreement. But I guess I'm speaking to the reality of what's going on in this country. Right. Country, you know, the the absolute divide, social divide. Never mind, right. you know, the politics and all of that, right. which is part of the same thing. Uh, and when you you react to what you're reading, seeing, mm -hmm. and you look <clears throat> at those, if you have any kind of mindfulness, which is extraordinarily important to be able sure. to us for any of us to maneuver through this life, right? Right. Uh, and if you have that, and you are easily seeing your separation, your self-interest, your prejudgment, all mm -hmm. of it, and then you may catch yourself, but the but the level that one feels, uh, like I don't give a sh I'm from Canada, right? So my my uh, attitude around politics and nationalism is very uh, cynical. Mm -hmm. uh, well, many people are getting cynical about that now. Sure, they don't have to be from Canada, but still, uh, I it's. Nothing about right or left for me. I mean, I have my own proclivities, obviously. Right. But it's about just essentially a mean spirit, about mean spirited people right. and how they care nothing for anyone aside from themselves. And that's what, how, you know, how do we address that without getting too involved ahead of where we are that's the problem for me is is assuming this position you know non-judgment mm. of, of not making anybody feel inadequate mm -hmm. trying to fix all of that you know we can get way ahead of ourselves and i don't think it does much well for someone who has an alcohol problem sobriety is a tall order for someone that needs to change their eating regimen to improve their health, um, a change in lifestyle is a tall order. In this world right now, <clears throat> we have fundamentally taken the time to be very clear on what all the problems are. And the solutions to these tall problems are going to be an equally tall order. So I think it's less about trying to be perfect and holding an image of perfection over, over your head and using that as an opportunity to, to judge ourselves for the way we are. I think really what it is, and when, as you've read in the book, our strive, our aim, our trajectory <clears throat> is to be an unconditionally loving person. In the book, I show people how it's not just being that way with other people, but how we talk to ourselves. Yeah. And really how yeah. we talk to ourselves will change how we talk to other people. But I think that, you know, the real benefit of living in a world with people who are mean-spirited and don't play by rules of mindfulness is that it actually helps heart-centered beings to become pure in their giving. That when we truly give from a pure space, it doesn't have to be reciprocated because we're doing it from an inspired place of care. And if people don't have a path to experience that type of unbounded, selfless, caring compassion, then we have no reference point. And the world as a mindful expression 
of a new reality where we can start to turn around climate change. We can start really kind of making this planet into a, a living reality of actualized consciousness. This gives us a direction. And the real question becomes, how much do I have to really love and care for my own needs? And how much self-care do I really need to be able to be inspired by this aspiration versus crumble under the pressure of my view by viewing it as a form of perfectionism. So I think, you know, the definition sets up the trajectory um, kind of like if someone said, well, Matt, enlightenment's a tall order. And I would say, well, you're not the one doing the enlightenment. It's just where you're headed and what's inevitable. And I think with this type of path of holding space, it's not something for us to do. It's something to get seduced by at the rate at which we start to resonate and become attracted to being nicer to ourselves, taking great care of ourselves. And the more we take great care of ourselves, the more inspired we are to care for others without keeping score along the way. And what's magical about that is it turns us into people who can't be manipulated by other people's agendas and who actually don't put people in positions to manipulate or harm us who might be mean-spirited. So it's, it's an incredible process that actually brings us to such a level of consciousness we actually are safe within ourselves, safe to care as we've never cared before. Mm-hmm. I like actually, I'm just remembering what you said before about defining enlightenment. Yeah. You know, there, there's what a, the top rung, shall we say, which is you are no longer identified with that little me, me guy right. or gal. You are not identified. That polarization is gone. Mm-hmm. And then you're only here for service. There's rare. That's very rare. That was a Neem Karoli Baba. That was sure. a Karmapa 16th and, and others. Um, but I like the idea of how about a little different interpretation, as you mentioned before, for enlightenment, which is just just being kinder on a day-to-day basis, right. stopping maybe not thinking about yourself like, 24-7, make it 23-7. Uh, my friend Krishnadas has this whole thing <laughs> called the movie of me. You wake up in the morning. You know, I've told this a billion times too, mm-hmm. but it's so dear to me, and I'm actually working on on developing something that may may help. Uh, and, um, you know, you're the director, you're the writer, you're the actor, you're the producer, you're, you're everything, and it's 24-7, mm-hmm. and we do that every day. <laughs> so once that gets cut into, that's a form of enlightenment as far as I'm concerned. And um, in you talk about um, some of the stuff that made you that me, me. We all have that. Yeah. And uh, I like, <laughs> there's one line, that, this is what got me, I was speaking to before, <laughs> where they, you, I guess it's your parents saying, what's wrong with you, Matthew? You become so quiet. Yeah. Exactly what I used to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's wrong with, wrong with you? Are you feeling well? Why are you so quiet? You exactly. look sad. Yeah. Maybe I was. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I got, I get, to this day, I sometimes, even, even now, uh, get this kind of feedback. Um, so, yeah. And the, and the core thing here is, yeah, talk about, 
because this is, to me, a very important topic. How do we recognize the neurotic tendencies and habitual patterns that get created from the get-go that we got the name? You got mm. your name, then suddenly you're somebody, and everybody else is a somebody else. Sure. And start from there. And then, like, you, you do talk quite a bit about the stuff that you went through growing up and how, oh, yeah. yeah, transmuting oh. that is an important thing. And, and, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And what's the first things to do, obviously, has to be that you realize, holy shit, you know? That's why I'm doing this with my friend, Duncan Trussell. Mm -hmm. And we're just recounting these stories that you've kind of told in, in the book, in the earlier part of the book, about those formations of... Um, yeah separateness well you know it's interesting because a lot of spiritual beings a lot of whom i've worked with i can speak from my experiences and and my experiences working with so many beings on this path a lot of beings that seem to be the most attracted to paths about being becoming aware and observing their own neurosis and working on it um, tend to even if their passion is for enlightenment and liberation or the cessation of suffering I notice that energetically it comes from a space of either self-doubt, self-judgment, self-hatred. And what I notice of that is that there's a lot of emphasis put on this little me. Sometimes, you know, whether people want to reference an imaginary me or it's a construct or whatever it is. And it's this very dry type of teaching that's void of the love that brings any aspect of separation back into totality and back into oneness. And I watch a lot of people who try to watch their little me and haven't seen that it's the little me watching the little me, just trying to earn the approval of God like it's a bigger cosmic parent. And what I've helped people do and what I continue to help people do is to realize that any neurosis that is existing within us pattern-wise is literally a part of your conditioning that says, I'm next in line to be accepted and loved as a part of your totality. Are you going to throw spiritual bullshit at me? Or are you going to actually love me as I am? Are you such a realized, undivided being where you can actually offer love to all divided parts of yourself and let me be a part of the wholeness that you are? So I find that self-love is actually the most radical path that cuts through a lot of the overly conceptual pointing that is prevalent on this path where people are trying to realize themselves either to get away from themselves, to be a version of themselves that's more preferable, to be more likable or whatever it is. At the end of the day, what's missing from this deep path is a sense of humility and love is what puts all this together. And I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm, quite passionate about it. Yeah, I know. Don't you think, as far as I'm concerned, you, you, you kind of segmented, though. You took a segment of people and their proclivity towards sure. recognizing neurotic tendencies and so on. Sure. And recognize, you know, and people who have, you know, a hard time with themselves, judging themselves, right. guilt, anger, right. I'm a piece of shit, whatever. Right. Uh, Matt? As far as I'm concerned, that's 100% of all of us have that in some way. Even Absolutely. the great teachers who are friends of mine, I see it. I'm with them, we, and we, uh, we laugh about it sure. uh, somewhat. But that is endemic to human beings, which is why right. allowing ourselves to be human 
and loving Absolutely. that part of ourselves as you're describing and yes. certainly in this book is yeah. extremely important. Thank you. But I think that, uh, yeah, we, we're all in the same boat. Just uh, if, if what the way we talk to each other right. was transcribed and put on social media, you'd be a pariah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, so, yeah, I, I do think that, um, Recognizing and working with that as energy is really important, and and I really believe for people to work with therapy is is a extremely profitable thing to be able be. to help transform, and it can be, yeah, not just uh, most people, especially on the spiritual path, mm -hmm. ignore all the psychological bullshit. Hey, that's mm -hmm. just le I've done it. I did it for years. I had right. my own way of doing it, and <laughs> you know, uh, yeah which got enhanced by virtue of being in India and meeting this being and all of that. Of course. Uh, it, it made things actually more difficult in a certain crazy way because I got stuck into some version of me being uh, a sadhu, actually. That was my thing. Mm. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, the... That's why I do appreciate the mindfulness practice, not particularly the ubiquitous mindfulness that allows <laughs> traders to do a lot more better trading stocks and so on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's very profitable that way. Okay. And, um, well, here's, here's one, another thing from the, this you got to translate. <laughs> no problem. It's not a matter of what anyone else doesn't know. Translation, please. It's not so okay. Because <clears throat> it's funny because when you reflect it back to me, I remember the book I wrote because I don't remember most of what I do. Okay, so it's not a matter of what someone doesn't know. So what that is that chapter is pointing to is it's helping us in our space holding process to be less of a rescuer and more of a companion to people. And it's very, very prevalent in the spiritual path where when someone is having an experience, there are people who will say, here's what I think you should do. Here's what I know that I'm inspired to share with you. And that can always come, that can come from a genuine, well-intended place. But what happens in the subconscious mind is that in order for someone else to say, you have a point, subconsciously, they have to be wrong by comparison. And so people walk away feeling less seen, less heard, and more disempowered. And the truth is, is that every answer that people need will drop into their awareness when they're meant to receive it. What people actually need is companionship. They need presence. They need support. And it's very common for people that are empaths that don't know they're empathic, who are feeling the discomfort of someone else's suffering to want to hurry them towards an answer so that they can feel mm. better in that person's presence. So a lot of time the rescuing is actually for the rescuer, not the one they're attempting to rescue. And so when it's not a matter of someone, what someone doesn't know, basically what I'm saying is when your nervous system is regulated, your self-awareness and your connection to consciousness is flowing perfectly. When we're dysregulated, we're just unaware of that flow. And so when we help to regulate people's nervous systems by allowing them to be seen, heard, loved, and valued, all of what we don't need to spend time convincing other people is true drops into their experience. And when it drops into an experience for a person, they're then more likely to own it as their realization and actually make the necessary changes that brings more beauty into their life. Hmm. That's a good one. Thank you. I like it. 
Uh, uh, there's a little, there's a funny little thing because you, you talk about your mother was always uh, quick to project her view of incompetence <laughs> to others, onto others. She's laughing at heaven. And the dad, your dad, casting the label, the label of stupid as freely as it was once projected onto him. Yeah. Yeah. So my another father, yeah. intersection here. My father. Yeah. His favorite expression, expression for somebody who say wasn't thinking properly, mm -hmm. incompetence. That stunned idiot. <laughs> I loved it though. I uh, to this day, I'm like, oh wow, stunned idiot. Yeah, there's a lot of stunned idiots around. That's so great. Oh God, help me. Um, what do you like that, about that phrase? It's so to the point of someone absolutely making the opposite decision of what would be correct for the for right. the moment for if it's a business thing for the project uh if it's a, if if it's familial uh absolutely making the opposite right decision yeah stunned idiot it's beautiful especially the stunned part Anyhow, I'm going to get some bad mail on this, Matt. So, well, and let me just add to this that I think that we all operate from our less, our least redeeming levels of consciousness when we are hurting, and you know, I it is my intention and aspiration and my life's mission to allow everyone who is hurting to be to know their wholeness, to be held, and it is when we go from hurting to receiving the help that we start to remember our own power. And then instead of being a hurt person that hurts people, we start to reclaim the power of our own consciousness by becoming a helper to others, just as someone else helped us, which is what I think the power of compassion has the chance to radically ripple out. And so when we love ourselves, we're actually loving all hearts in existence, even if it seems we're the only one receiving it in the moment. So I think the love and the, the self-love and the holding space can be an antidote for that predicament, for sure. For the stunned idiot predicament? If that's what, if that's, <laughs> or I would say for the hurting yeah. that occurs in humanity that causes people to act from their um, most insufferable parts. <laughs> uh, I'm doing better. I really am. Um, <laughs> But through through, uh, there's some through lines here that yeah, being able to listen, being able to uh, make sure people feel validated, you know, are two important things uh, in terms of the different uh, ways in which we can look to be better humans. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was Simone Weil who said, "The most generous thing that you can do for another person." is give them your 100% attention. That's right. So that's listening, that's validation. It, it's, uh, and I, it's, it's what happened to me when I first met Ram Dass physically. Mm -hmm. um, and he just opened up into, in one fell swoop, mm -hmm. into the many different things that, you know, you're talking about validation and, and being able to listen and mm -hmm. having mercy. You know, some of the... Uh, excellent, excellent themes that you have in this in the in the book. Uh, sure. Humility, because he just he was ignoring Richard Alpert and Ram Dass. It was just me, mm -hmm. you know, and that's hard to 
happen in, in one's life, except maybe with your mother when you're a baby <laughs> and so on. Uh, so, yeah, the listening and I think validation, though, made us, uh, everyone understands the beauty of being listened to and held yeah. that way. Validation, talk about it just for a minute. Well, validation is a form of active listening. I believe that's what I talked about in the book. Um, but when we talk about active listening, you know, what's interesting is that we give the ego something to do because the ego by default is just listening only for, let me hear the words that might, you know, fall into my mindset of interest. Um, let me see what I agree or disagree with what they're saying. Let me, you know, kind of mm. like when we're playing jump rope, we're just like waiting for an opportunity to, to get in and we're only listening to figure out what our next response is. And we're not really hearing people. Right. And so when we talk about active listening, active listening is where the ego's role, because the ego is a seeker by nature. So the ego's role is you get to listen to the conversation and you get to listen so intently that you get to create follow-up questions that show the person that you're really listening to them and that you're really engaged and interested in what they're sharing and what the ego starts to learn as it starts to listen from an active state is the more present I am with listening, the more I'm, I come up with questions that allows someone else's life that I may not be interested in to appeal to my interests by me being an equal part of this exchange. And when people can really be seen and heard by being listened to from an active state of interest, there's a great likelihood that they in a moment of reciprocity feel safe enough to open up and, and ask questions of you. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that really what we're doing is, you know, it's not about getting rid of the ego. It's about integrating the ego. And part of the integration of the ego is it being retrained in consciousness and the ego learns, oh, I don't just have to focus on me and make everything about me, but as I am completely invested and interested in someone else's journey through the law of oneness, I too feel seen, heard and valued just by how deeply I see, hear and value others. And that's mm. one of the realizations mm -hmm. the ego has as it's being integrated by the consciousness waking up in human beings. Mm. Basically, the ego's got to go to a psych ward for a while. It goes to rehab, basically. Yeah, rehab, yeah. That's, that's goes to re this life is uh, get your ego and you rehab quickly. Uh, yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's so right on. I mean, the that's why the foundation that I'm part of, director of, is called Love, Serve, Remember. That was our oh. only instruction from Neem Karoli Pop. Mm -hmm. Love everyone. Serve everyone and that's remember right. the divine. That's and that's what when we try to get really super big time <laughs> fancy methodology, never happened. Never, never, never. Yeah, never happened. There isn't anything like that. Um, there's there's a nice thing around mercy as well, which mm. is that's a tough word here. Yeah. You know, mercy. You know, because it it has all that shall we say, Judeo-Christian connotations. It can, for sure. Yeah, and it can, yeah. But um, just think about, so I was thinking about, think about mercy for oneself. There's this great book that we put out, actually, which was uh, just quotes of Ramdas, but themed, so you could pick a section of, you know, mm. that would give you a little bit of support for the day. This, this is the book, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
It's really cool. One of the things, and it, it starts his loving awareness chapter because his whole thing was move from your ego mind, from mm -hmm. the I that you normally operate with on a 24-7 basis. Right. Take some breath, a few breaths into the heart space, middle of right. the chest, and move your consciousness down to that place where there is no judgment Sure. There is, you know, it, there's unconditionality. Everything that you're talking about in the book. I mean, it's, right. there's only one thing going on, and we're all describing it in different ways. Sure. Uh, but here's what he said to lead that chapter off, which to me is the ex, the transparent nature of uh, being able to do something for mm -hmm. oneself that can allow for this kind of, for any kind of service or for mm -hmm. any reaching out, for any listening, validation, all of the things, this is absolutely necessary. So he said, I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness. <laughs> it motivated me, Matt, actually to just have on my little altar, I found a picture of myself as a child mm -hmm. just looking off into the like it looked like i was thinking oh god i'm alone in this whole thing oh you know sad looking out into the distance and i put it under uh, by a picture actually of one of my favorite lamas dilgo kensi rinpoche one of the great great tibetan lamas mm -hmm. and uh it's kind of a funny juxtaposition <laughs> and this quote just led me to recognizing i it's a practice that I needed to do hmm. to, to really uh, counter the self-talk that I'm quite aware of and I don't mm -hmm. indulge in, but it's mm -hmm. still there no, you know, no matter what, especially I'm you know, involved uh, the way I am in the world and through the things that I do. And so this thing was so absolutely beautiful, this, this quote. And, um, yeah, but maybe give us a, a little thing on, on mercy and maybe uh, something that takes it out of the should do, got to do, yeah. uh, guilt, you know, the, the, basically some of the exoteric Christian, Jewish Christian principles. Sure. Well, you know, and I appreciate, you know, Ram Dass and many other people who, who have pointed to out of the mind into the heart. But I, you know, part of the tenet of my teachings is that we have to ask ourselves a question, and the, or, and, or a, the statement rather is, if it's not how you would treat a child in pain, it's not how we should treat ourselves. So if we think of the mind as a child, and we think of the heart as a child, and the consciousness as a parent, for me, it's not a measurement of mercy to go, I'm going to ditch this kid, I'm going to go hang out with the heart-centered kid and move my awareness there because the rule is no kid left behind. And so I think really what the journey has evolved into is it's not a matter of leaving your mind, ditching your mind and going into your heart, because then we're just spiritually trading up. It's actually how the consciousness can unite the mind in the heart, because the mind only functions neurotically when it's separate from its divine counterpart called the heart. And the heart feels disempowered and sensitive when without the protection of 
or the empowerment of the mind. And so really, I think we're on a path of mercy. We're bringing the mind and heart together in holy matrimony, and then they can drop into the honeymoon in the gut mm. and be on their little adventure. And I think that when we're talking about mercy, mercy is a, is a form of restraint. And restraint says, as an aspect of compassion, whether to your own noisy mind or to someone else who's making a lot of noise, I see you're in far too much pain for me to add to your suffering by responding in a way that is not restraintful. That's what mercy says. And so for me, we're not abandoning the mind, bringing consciousness into the heart. We are bringing the mind and heart together because if the mind is neurotic, there's a child who needs a parent's attention. If the heart is feeling insecure and doubtful, there's a child needing its the love of a parent. And we are really reparenting ourselves by being for ourselves what all the parts of us really need. And as we hold space for ourselves from a place of elegant mercy, we become the transmitters of mercy in a world that we're helping to be reborn by teaching human beings how they deserve to be treated. Uh, I must uh, represent Ram Das here because uh, I'm just hearing him as you spoke. What's up, it is, it's, a, it's not a matter of abandoning the mind. Yeah. Actually, what he's talking about, from my point of view, yeah. uh, since he's not right in the room, or if right. he is, he's invisible. Yeah. Uh, but it's about perspective, mm -hmm. of moving your perspective out of the judgmental blah, blah. Right. Right. Out of that separation, out of the fear, right. into the place in us that is absolutely unaffected by that, by virtue of we can settle into a place, right. for most people, mm -hmm. that does, is unconditional and accepts that uh, poor little guy, you know, the right. poor little ego, the I that we're used to on a day-to-day -day basis. So sure. it's a sh perspective shift rather than a leaving the mind to it fend for itself. Okay. Well, even in that, and I appreciate that, even in that, I have an issue with that because even the perspective shift is suggesting love versus fear when really we're in a new paradigm where it's actually love the one who's afraid. We're not loving that we're afraid. We're saying, my God, with the amount of fear coursing through me, I really need love right now. And can I be that person? So even with the perspective shift, I find that most people take that teaching and turn it into some subtle form of self-abandonment. And my contribution to this path is to eliminate any kind of movement in that direction because I, I find that the ability to use spirituality to bypass the grit yeah, of the human experience. Big right? time with you. Big so time. I only say that to reframe the yeah. teaching for our modern day where it's like, okay, if I'm afraid, I need love. Not, I'm failing my mission. But that's uh, no. that is what Ramdas intended. That once that perspective was entered sure. into that field, mm -hmm. that field held all right. of the fear, all of yeah. the separation. It didn't abandon it. It holds sure. it. 
by virtue of, until that happens, and that takes a lot of practice too. This right. isn't just something like that. You can switch. You know, you, your whole life has been filled with yeah. separation and fear and anxiety. It's not, but you work on it, and once that can happen, there is an embrace of that. Sure, there totally is. And um, you know, and you know, I could add to this and just say that in my work with people, what I found is that when I help align their attention in the most loving perspective, that kind of shift of the all-inclusive, untouchable presence activates for people a lot more directly. And what's amazing is if your journey starts out in the most loving way, it will expand in a loving direction. And again, I'm only saying this having, you know, had this reoccurring experience of like, yeah, the idea is once I reach this presence, then I'm going to be loving. And what I find is that on the way in that direction, people aren't taught to be loving towards themselves. And I find that we need to kind of move to love first, not move towards something that will be love one day, but we all need and we all deserve to stop and realize spiritual aspirations aside, we all deserve more love, not less. And if, you know, that's perceived as a radical teaching, I'll take it. I just want to make sure that people are loving themselves more because literally we're living in a planet where the sustainability of a species and a planet relies on so much self-love so we can feel attracted to making more empowered decisions that really benefit the sum of the whole. Yeah. Well, we're at the end of the uh, podcast. It started with, or at the very beginning, the little poem by that's no longer in the book. And I'm glad I got the pre-release book by David yeah. White. Started with that poem. Yeah. Okay. I want to I want to end with a poem by, you know, Mary Oliver, very well-known poet. I don't know if I do. I'll buy a look oh, her. you would love her, man. Would I? Yeah, absolutely. Exciting. It's a favorite. I found out about her through uh, Jack Cornfield. Mm. Uh, it's called At the Pond. And it certainly relates with mercy. Yeah. One summer I went every morning to the edge of a pond where a huddle of just-hatched geese would paddle to me and clamber up the marshy slope and over my body, peeping and staring, such sweetness every day, which the grown ones watched, for whatever reason, serenely. Not there, however, but here is where the story begins. Nature has many mysteries some of them severe. Five of the young geese grew heavy of chest and bold of wing, while the sixth waited and waited in its gauze feathers, its body that would not grow. And then it was fall. And this is what I think everything is all about. The way I was glad for those five and two that flew away, and the way I hold in my heart the wingless one that had to stay. <laughs> That's, I love that so much. I don't even know. I think I got it from a llama, actually. It's beautiful. That, yeah, isn't it something? It's beautiful. And mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate you sharing this with me, and I really appreciate the time to connect on this podcast. Definitely, it's, it's, Matt. All, it's a pleasure to meet you. And uh, Thank you. And same here. And everybody, of course, with show notes will be there. You can connect up with Matt and his book, uh, you just go to beherenownetwork.com slash mindrolling, and it'll all be there. And uh, again, thank you for being here. My pleasure. It's an honor. 
All right. We'll see you next time. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And boy, do we have a lot of great podcasters. That's all I'll say about that today. Okay. <laughs>